morning, everyone. And uh, there's plenty of worksheets in the back if you didn't get one on the way in. And even for the adults, if you have a hard time following, you're welcome to grab one of those. Um, but as Kevin mentioned, we will not have a prize for you, but still worth the effort, right? <clears throat> well, there aren't too many things that I remember from sixth grade, but I distinctly remember one thing. Kickball. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with this sport, it's a sport that's very uh, similar to baseball. Or you play it on a field with bases. Um, you have the outfield, infield. You have a batter, right? Essentially, the rules are very similar. Only difference being that instead of throwing the ball to the person at the plate, you roll it. And instead of hitting it with a bat, you kick it with your feet. And... During our PE class, we would, I remember we would go out to the blacktop, we would all line up in a single file line facing the team captains, and they would go um, each person at a time and just select players that would be on his or her team, right? Alternating between a boy, then girl, boy, girl. Now, Neil Thompson was always the first one picked. He was the fastest, he was the strongest, he was the most athletic of our class. And when he came up to kick, we would all take 10 steps back. And he would still kick it way past all of us. Now, I wish I could say I was selected near the top of the draft. Um, but usually I was somewhere in the middle. And invariably, the ones that were chosen last were the ones who were afraid of the ball. And when the ball was kicked in their direction, they would run the opposite way. Now, if God were to choose who belonged to his church in the way that you or I might choose a kickball team, most of us would not make the cut. No offense, but we're not exactly the who's who of our society. We're not intellectually elite, musically acclaimed, or athletically gifted, nor are we politically powerful or socially sophisticated. But thankfully, God is not like us, and his ways are not ours. He does not build his kingdom like a general manager of an NBA team, right? Doling out millions of dollars, uh, signing free agents, making trades, whatever it takes to put together a roster that can compete for a championship. Nor does he hire the brightest and the smartest as Elon Musk or Tim Cook, or Mark Zuckerberg would. Instead, according to divine wisdom and to his economy of grace, God chose to be part of his church the most unlikely candidates, the foolish, the weak, the despised. Not the wise, not the strong, or the self-sufficient. It was precisely because of our lowly status that God called us and chose us to be his church. Instead of home run Harry or a gold glove Gary, God would have chosen strike out Sally and Butterfinger Bob to be part of his kickball team. Why is that? 
Well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, God chose to build his church in this way to display his supreme power and wisdom. And what we learned last week is that the church is entirely God's possession and his work of salvation. And through the life and death and resurrection of Christ, we who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, enslaved to the passions of our flesh and powerless to save ourselves from his wrath, we were sanctified in him, called to be saints, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, and called into his fellowship. Through the cross, we were reconciled to the Father and united to one another, a bunch of nobodies and losers in the eyes of the world with no business being part of his household, having nothing in common, except for the fact that we are all recipients of his divine grace. So that together we might reflect and represent the one to whom we belong. All this to show that you and I do not exist to exalt ourselves, but to magnify the wisdom, the power, and the grace of God in his church. And that, if you recall, is our gospel identity and calling. At the same time, according to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, God chose to build his church in this way to humble the proud and to destroy, to thwart, and to make foolish the wisdom of the world so that no human being might boast in his presence. And herein lies the problem with the Corinthian church. At the root of all their issues was pride, which threatened and compromised the unity of the church. This morning, we'll focus on one particular way in which their pride resulted in factions, dissension, quarreling, and strife. But it manifested in other ways as well, from the way they exercised their spiritual gifts, to the way they exercised their Christian liberties, to the way they tolerated sexual immorality in the congregation, to the way they took each other to court, even to the way they took the Lord's table. Though the testimony of Christ had been confirmed in them, worldliness, pride, and immaturity characterized the lives of these believers rather than holiness and unity to which they had been called. Now, before we are quick to pick up stones, we ought to first take the log out of our own eyes. For if we were to honestly examine our lives in the light of Scripture, we would find that we are more like the Corinthians than we care to admit. And that the same problems that afflicted their congregation 2,000 years ago are still with us today. Just like Corinth in the first century. Here in the Silicon Valley, we live in a cosmopolitan society surrounded by intellectualism, affluence, prosperity, and influence all around. Our contemporary culture prides itself in human achievements, wisdom, and philosophy, and in the practice and tolerance of sexual immorality. In our church, like theirs, 
is in many ways a mirror of the church of the world in which we live. As with the church to which Paul wrote, we have been enriched in the knowledge of God's truth, not lacking in any gift. Yet the battle against pride and worldliness for holiness, unity, and maturity in the church remains an ongoing challenge. And I suspect it will continue to be as long as we are here. As far as divisions within the church, and this is full disclosure for those of you who are going through our membership process. In the years that I've been part of this church, members have left over doctrinal disagreement, over issues of conscience, style of preaching, practice of church discipline, over discontentment with leadership and differences in philosophy of ministry. We've seen disunity on both a membership and leadership level. And we've had people say things like, I haven't been growing from the teaching at this church for the past six months. I don't connect with the people here. This isn't the same church I joined seven years ago. Now we're not here to put down those who have left our church or certainly none of us are more righteous than them. And it is only by the grace of God that we are who we are. And we're not here to say that there's never a good reason to leave a church. But my point is this. We think that we have never been affected by disunity or division in the history of our church. We're disillusioned. And if you're not convinced, Have any of you struggled with discontentment, with jealousy, bitterness, or frustration toward a fellow brother or sister in the church? I have, and the Lord has had to humble me in these ways. As we will see with the Corinthians, all it takes is the right occasion for our pride to manifest in division. So then, given the reality that division will continue to be a threat to the unity of the body, where can we find hope? The confidence that we have is not in ourselves, it's not in our past successes, or in our ability to hold things together, but in the faithfulness of God, who according to 1 Corinthians 1.8, will sustain us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in the promise that Christ gave in Matthew 16, 18, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This promise he secured through his saving work on the cross by which the church has been made holy and one in Christ. And together we are now called to walk in his holy unity as we await the revealing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To that end, God has not only provided the means to help us pursue, preserve, and protect this gift of unity, but he's also given us warnings in his word so that we might rightly understand and guard against what threatens our unity in Christ. So as we come to our text for this morning, taken from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 3, 23, we will consider three aspects concerning the threat to the church in the pursuit of our unity in Christ. 
three aspects concerning the threat to the unit to the church in the pursuit of our unity in Christ. Let's begin with the occasion for division. The occasion for division. After greeting the church in Corinth and expressing thanksgiving for God's grace in their lives, the Apostle Paul opens his letter by directly addressing an issue that he had become aware of starting in verse 10 of chapter 1. We read, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He revisits the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where he writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Here at the very beginning, Paul reveals the specific concern that had prompted him to write this letter to the Corinthians. And it forms brackets around his central argument found in chapter 1, verses 18 through 2, chapter 2, verse 16. And we'll look at that more closely when we get to our final point for this morning. But apparently, Paul had learned through a particular group known only to us as Chloe's people, that factions around leaders had arisen in the church he had planted approximately five years earlier. And even though the Lord had moved him on to Ephesus in his apostolic ministry, this news so greatly burdened Paul that he wrote this corrective message in response under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a spiritual father to his children through the gospel. Three times in the passages we just read, he affectionately refers to the Corinthians as brothers, Adelphoi in the Greek, which other translations, including the NASB, translates as brothers and sisters, those who belong to the household of God. At the same time, Paul appeals to them as an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse 1, and exhorts them by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10 reminding them that these words are not merely his opinions, but they carry the authority of the one who is the Lord of the church. Also, in his exhortation to pursue unity in the church, he mentioned several names. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. Now, most of us are familiar with Paul. Right? He's the author of this epistle. And he was divinely called to be an apostle or a messenger of Christ after his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. 
He had planted the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey and would go on to plant many more churches as arguably the greatest Christian missionary of all time. Not a bad choice of someone to imitate. Cephas was the Aramaic name for Simon Peter. He was one of the original 12 disciples, along with James and John. He was part of Christ's inner circle, who later became an apostle to the Jews. And we read about his life and ministry in the gospel in the book of Acts, as well as in his first and second epistles. And then there's Christ. Obviously, that's referring to Jesus Christ, which was not his last name, but the specific title given to our Lord and Savior. It comes from the Greek word Christos, meaning anointed one or chosen one. He's the one anointed and chosen by God who came to deliver his people from sin in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and who would one day return for his church. But who was Apollos? Well, in the book of Acts, we're told that Apollos was eloquent, competent in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit, and instructed in the ways of the Lord. He was an evangelist, an apologist, the faithful partner in the gospel, who succeeded the Apostle Paul as the leader of the church in Corinth. Speaking about the church metaphorically, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He had a natural ability and a natural appeal that people in the Corinthian church found compelling and attractive. Now, certainly, it's not wrong to show honor to leaders in the local church. In fact, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we are to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And that includes those whom the Lord has gifted with certain personalities and abilities. And throughout his letters in places like 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul affirms and exhorts the church to follow his example, his teaching, his faith, his conduct, even his suffering and persecution. But that's not what was going on with the Corinthians. Enamored with secular wisdom, Greek rhetoric, and human sophistication, they went beyond what Scripture calls for and made it an issue of partisanship as they boasted about their personal loyalty to particular leaders. And in the Greco-Roman world, speakers were prized and praised for their rhetorical effectiveness and brilliance. In preaching, there was an emphasis on style over substance. Yeah, that message on the cross was nice, but boy, did you hear how smooth he spoke and how he seamlessly wove his arguments together? And it revealed in the Corinthians their spiritual immaturity and worldly way of thinking, no different than what is seen in the surrounding culture, whether in ancient Greece or today in modern America. And you just look at what's going on around our nation and in our churches over the past few years. And it doesn't take a sermon on division and disunity to realize that factions that result 
from allegiance to secular, political, even Christian leaders, movements, and agendas. Again, I wish I could say that our church was different, that we are above such immaturity and worldliness. But the same spirit that divided the Corinthian church back then remains with us today. I'm of Pastor John. I'm of Pastor Mark. I'm of this discipleship group leader, but that one I just can't stand or respect. I don't agree with what Kevin said to me, so I'm going to go to speak with Ted about it. I just can't get used to his preaching style. Oh, but the pastor who came to preach for us two weeks ago, he can really preach. Brothers and sisters, we are to expect this type of division in the world, but it ought not to be in his church. For as Paul reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.13, Christ is not divided, and we are all one in him. We learned last week that this is our gospel identity and calling, that belonging to God is the result of his work in us, the church is to reflect his holy unity. As saints who have been sanctified and unified through a common confession, we're called to actively pursue the unity of his church. And by the way, it's just not the responsibility of the elders, but of every member of the household of God, as Paul addresses the entire church to preserve and promote our unity in Christ and to guard against what threatens it. Thus, having reminded the Corinthian believers of who they are in Christ, the Apostle Paul rebukes them for living in a manner contrary to their calling. According to their secular way of thinking, they were allowing what differs to be of greater importance than Christ, who binds and unites us together under his lordship. In their personal loyalty to leaders, even respectable ones, such as Paul, Peter, and Apollos, they were elevating servants of Christ above the head of the church, who's Christ himself. And in focusing on the skills and abilities of ministers, they had forgotten the significance of the cross by which the world had been crucified to them and they to the world. So out of loving concern for the church, Paul reproves them for behaving inconsistently with the gospel they had embraced. The Apostle Paul doesn't simply stop at pointing out their faults as we might be tempted to do with our kids when they're fighting in the backseat of the car. You guys can be praying for Becky and myself as we planning to drive down to L.A. this afternoon. But like a true pastor and shepherd, the Apostle Paul addresses the heart of the issue. And this brings us to our second point for this morning, the source of division. The source of division. As mentioned earlier, there were many problems that plagued the church in Corinth, raging from their mishandling of sexual scandal to lawsuits to food sacrifice to idols. But I would suggest to you that it could all be traced to a single source. What was at the root of all their divisions was not difficult circumstances or communication breakdown. It was not systemic racism or gender inequality. It was not irreconcilable differences in personality, 
background, socioeconomic status, or spiritual giftedness. It was not even their words or their actions, but ultimately their desires. Worldly pride, or what the Bible calls selfish ambition, was the source of their disunity. And factions over church leaders was merely the occasion in which their prideful heart was exposed. We see the same source of rivalry, conflict, dissension, and division described in James chapter 4. If you could turn with me there, James chapter 4 will read, starting at verse 1. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, right? selfish ambition. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's the call to repentance. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And according to 1 John 2.16, this lust of the flesh, the desire of their eyes, and this boastful pride of life was not from the Father, but from the world out of which the Corinthians had been saved. Given the source of division, it should not come as a surprise that personal allegiance to particular leaders in the church was not the only context in which their pride was revealed. It also manifested, as mentioned earlier, in the way the Corinthians boasted about their spiritual gifts, tolerated sin in the church, exercised their freedom in Christ without regard for the weaker brother, and took each other to court rather than being defrauded or suffering wrong. All of this threatened the unity of the church and prompted the Apostle Paul to write this letter of rebuke. I do not commend you, but I say this to your shame. Your boasting is not good. Worldly pride manifests in many different ways but it is always divisive in nature. It never builds up. It only tears down. It is true in our marriages. It is true with our roommates, but it is especially true in our relationships in the church, which is meant to reflect and represent the holy unity shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This worldly pride goes against our gospel identity. For according to 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, 
to bring to nothing that things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And Paul emphasizes this point in the very next verse when he writes, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So then, both Apollos and Paul, being servants through whom the Corinthians had believed, they were not to boast in these men. For neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Instead of boasting in himself or in others, Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, division in the body of Christ undermines the work of the cross. What's at stake is more than my rights. It's more than your preferences or his or her reputation. This unity in the church compromises our worship of God and our testimony of Christ to the world. And that should weigh heavily on our hearts. Before we move on, in light of this internal threat to the unity of the church, we have to ask ourselves, in what areas of our lives do you and I need to repent of selfish ambition and youthful pride? If we're honest with ourselves, this is the natural disposition of our flesh. Ed, Ed Welch, in the book that many of us are reading for, the Summer Book Club, makes the point that in the sinfulness of our hearts, we all yearn for recognition. Not to stand out like a sore thumb, but to be acknowledged, accepted, and approved by others. We're often rewarded at work and in ministry for our hard work, for our independence and individuality. And we crave people's attention to be honored and respected, even through our association and allegiance to particular leaders in the church. Again, Christ calls us to repent over our selfish desires, not just our divisive words and behavior. We may not necessarily be aware of them at the time, but when we come into the church, we each bring our own set of expectations and preferences. And perhaps you're single and you'd hope to find a godly guy or gal in the church to pursue a relationship with. Or maybe for those who just graduated, you had hoped to be part of a college ministry when you first became a member of this church. Or perhaps you had expectations of a children's ministry similar to ones they have at other churches. And while many of these desires are good and we ought to continue to pray for them, what the Lord often reveals when we don't get what we hope for or when we get what we didn't bargain for, is that selfish ambition is ruling our hearts and that our expectations of Christ's church are driven more by personal agenda than the word and will of God. Again, I've been guilty of such pride and discontentment in my own life, so I'm not here to single out anyone, but simply to remind all of us that if our common confession is that Christ is Lord, then our common ambition should be this, that Christ would be exalted in his church as we walk in his unity 
and make it our aim to be pleasing to him. So is that your greatest desire and prayer for your life and for this church? For Christ to increase and for us to decrease more than anything else? If so, God has shown us how to pursue this calling for his church and at the same time to guard against the threat to our unity in Christ. It is through the way and word of the cross, which leads to our third and final point for this morning. Remedy for division. The remedy for division. In the middle section of our passage, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 16, the Apostle Paul shows us that the word of the cross is what God has ultimately provided as the path to pursuing unity in this church. And if you were here a couple months ago, Pastor Mark preached on this same passage from 1 Corinthians 1 through 2. And we learn how the word of the cross is necessary for everyone, everywhere, all the time. How it saves us from the power and wisdom of this world by revealing and imparting the glory of God in Christ. And that is the message that Paul had received and delivered to the Corinthians. But knowing what was going on in the church at the time, how does the Apostle Paul apply these truths specifically to the situation at hand? When proclaiming the necessity of the cross, he highlighted the fact that the Corinthians had lost sight of their gospel identity and calling. And as they became puffed up with pride, this led to all sorts of divisions amongst them. While they had embraced the gospel of grace, still in the flesh, as infants in Christ, the church was influenced by the world, drawn to secular ways of thinking, enticed by human ingenuity, and captivated by the wisdom of fallen men. As a result, they had an inflated view of themselves, a diminished view of Christ, and a corresponding low view of other members in the body. This was the recipe for divisions in the church. If that was the recipe for disunity amongst the Corinthians, the remedy provided is the word of the cross. For only the gospel puts us in our proper place, not above others, not above Christ, but at the foot of his cross. It's only when we stand beneath the cross where Christ died for the sins of his church, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, that we realize there is no room for boasting about our loyalties to servant leaders in the church, for taking pride in our spiritual gifts, for insisting upon our rights and liberties, for tolerating unrepented sin in his church. For the cross is the path of humility that grows us in our unity. We see this most clearly in the person and work of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, the point of death, even death, on a cross. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, we as his church are to put on 
the very same mind of Christ. To do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. To look not only to our own interests, as we were once accustomed to doing, but in humility. To count others more significant than ourselves in our pursuit of gospel unity. This is the way of the cross that binds us together as one in Christ and enables us to walk in his humility. At the end of the day, in declaring the word of the cross, Paul's hope for the Corinthians' repentance was not in his own persuasive speech or argument, but in the power and wisdom of God that had saved these believers, that was actively working in their lives, and that promised to sustain them to the end. And despite the mess that they had created in the church, he had every reason to believe that in Christ, what they needed in order to pursue unity with one another, they had been supplied through the word and way of the cross. His job was simply to be faithful, to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified and to speak the truth in love so that their faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Brothers and sisters, this should hopefully bring us great encouragement as we encounter worldliness, pride, and division in our church. We need not look to the world for wisdom, counsel, or advice, only to humbly proclaim the word of the cross and to humbly live the way of the cross for that is the path to pursuing our unity in Christ. With all the divisions and distractions in the world and in our battle against the stubbornness of our own flesh, let's keep our eyes fixed on Christ. As Paul did for the Corinthians, let's help each other and remind one another of our gospel identity and calling. And let's celebrate together the work of the cross a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to us who are called to be saints, the power and wisdom of God. And this morning we considered from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 to 3.23, three aspects concerning the threat to the church and the pursuit of our unity in Christ. And we have the opportunity to respond and apply what we heard from his word by coming to the Lord's table.